Welcome to Robot Friends, a podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 15, Eigenrobot vs. Shay. Hi all, I'm here with Shay Levy. He is the VP of Engineering at SCARF. He's into consciousness research. He is a, I think, notable objectivist. <laughs> and actually a family man too. I there's video now in in Zencaster and his kids are adorable. So hey, welcome man. How you hey, doing today? Thanks for having me. Doing pretty well. So I think let's start with objectivism because it's been on the timeline a bit, partly because of you posting about how other people have been on the show and mentioned that they've been objectivists. Yeah. Which is pretty interesting to me. I um I don't think I've ever been an objectivist, although I did read Atlas Shrugged at one point. I think, you know, I I see why people complain about it and I see why it makes people mad and the parts about it that make people mad as opposed to just objecting to it on literary grounds. I think those parts are actually good. But <laughs> maybe I, it, it's also true that I did not read the 50 page speech. I I I just couldn't make myself do it, and I well, by the yeah. time I got to that part, I didn't want to. I thought there were much better speeches in that book, um, and and maybe that one was a little bit overindulgent and and not of <laughs> such obvious value. But I don't know. I I think also I mostly see people making fun of objectivists, but not with really coherent complaints. Yeah. Uh, everything everything seems pretty. Oh, um, oh I don't know caricatured and so i thought maybe we could start out with if, if you i i guess i object to that sort of thing sort of in the way that i object to people just piling into rationalists and making really dumb arguments against them so i thought right. maybe i could start out just giving you the floor for as long as you want to talk about what objectivism actually is because again i don't actually have any idea <laughs> and and like maybe just giving everybody a coherent view of it that is more defensible than Herder or Ayn Rand. Yeah. So I guess the preliminary would be that I'm not in any way an expert on this, nor am I prominent in any way that would be relevant. Um, I've got some objectivist friends. But um, yeah, so I think the first thing I would say is, you know, Atlas Shrugged is a novel. It's meant to be a novel. It was. It's not meant to be a vehicle for philosophy. You know, Rand thought she I mean her the way she sort of talks about how she developed her ideas was that she wanted to be a novelist she wanted to tell she she wanted to present a certain kind of person um and in order to do that she found she needed to develop a philosophy to define what that kind of person was oh um, i like that yeah and so so the philosophy up until the point of Atlas Shrugged, and then after that, her life changes a little bit. But up until the point of Atlas Shrugged, all of her philosophical development is in the service of her of her work. Um, and so, you know, if you like or dislike Atlas Shrugged, that's it's not meant to be. Though, so this is what objectivism is. You know, you, you talk about the speech at the end. I go back and forth on it. I like it on its own. Thinking about it as philosophy, I find it within the novel. Now, when I read it now, I usually have to like push through or just skip it. Uh, <laughs> the first time I really liked it. Uh, and so I, the, I've thought about this because you mentioned this on one of the earlier podcasts with, I think, uh, Goblin. Yeah. That you, um, that's, that you sort of had that experience. And I was thinking about it and I was just like, on the one hand, I don't think 
given what was what she what was known about her at the time, I don't think it would have made sense. Everything I think it would have been hard to really understand what what the story was about without some detail. On the other hand, it was I do think it's too much from a uh, literary perspective, and I do think once you know it, it's extremely superfluous. You could have easily easily sort of skimmed the highlights. Um, that so that's like. If you like Atlas Shrugged or not, if you like The Fountainhead or not, if you find the ideas presented there are not uh, compelling, that's not really her main argument. Her her novels are to be novels, are to 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 stylistically represent a particular, you know, concretize a particular values and ways of being and, and all of that. Um, so what I, is objective? Oh, go ahead. I, I actually really like that. And maybe we should loop back to that at some point. I... I was talking on the timeline of maybe last week about how a lot of social development is just the presence and prevalence and stature of different types of guy in society. <laughs> and it does really seem like Ayn Rand is trying to valorize a certain type of guy. Yes. And I I like that. And I wonder if that's a major role of philosophy. I mean, you know, Nietzsche did something like that. I think there are different types of guy. I mean, like, you know, there's Renaissance guy, for yeah. example. Renaissance guy was a big development. Um, <laughs> I'm very fond yeah. of this idea. We can. Yeah, and, you know, Rand would say that's, you know, a big part of the purpose of art in general is to concretize different types of guys. Um, she would use exactly those words. Um, but yeah, um, you know, I think the. <sighs> For Rand specifically, you know the the purpose of her philosophy. She wants to say true things about the world, about you know fundamental ideas about the world. But it's all about literally what kind of person you want to be, right? You know, how do you how do you make your you know, what what do you need to know in order to live a good life, in order to to be to be a person who can thrive and, and flourish in the world. Um, so it is, you know, you can, you can look at it as a system of ideas, um, sort of standalone and evaluated on those grounds, but really the point is to live it. The point is not to debate it. The point is not to argue it. The point is not to, I mean, the, the point is to decide if it's true and if it's true, act on it and live it and, and all of that. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, is that the point of philosophy? Ren would say yes. I think some people would say no. Some people would say it's contemplating, you know, just contemplating the nature of reality for its own sake or, or that sort of thing, um, which she's very much against that, that notion of what knowledge is for. Interesting. Um, yeah. That's okay. I... It feels like there has to be some kind of it. Well, okay, I don't want to. I don't want to necessarily get into the weeds on that yet. So, <laughs> so the the type, maybe what you're describing is Ayn Rand is about being a type of guy who learns things, but learns them for the sake of becoming and doing. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think that's 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 a good way. That's a good way to capture it, right? I mean, that's part of part of it is you know her her essential. Um, one of her essential ethical points is that reason is man's means of survival. And that in a very biological context, in the sense of like different animals have different things and, and different, uh, you know, different organisms have different 
things that they do that are sort of essential to how they survive and thrive in the world. And for, for humans, that's thinking and, and learning about the world and apply and applying that knowledge. Her notion of reason is very much knowing and then acting uh, on that knowledge. And so, yeah, that's, that would be, um, that, that is sort of a, a, the central thing of, you know, her, her core virtue is rationality is, going by reason and acting on on what you know and there that, that she has a lot of elaboration on what that means and all of that but that is really the essence of it is be the kind of guy who knows and in order to do and and become <laughs> okay like that. yeah so i think all of that feels pretty unobjectionable to me so far yeah and which you know which is great i think but but maybe it leaves a little bit of space it, it feels a bit under maybe insufficiently concrete oh so yeah do you, for do you, sure do you, do you have some examples of exemplars maybe non-fictional exemplars of what she thinks this looks like in practice or alternatively yes. some like real failure modes of people who are just fucking it up at some point or another <laughs> yeah um so i think the the best real life exemplars that that she would point to and these are mixed of course but she would look at, um, you know, the um, industrial titans of, of the Gilded Age. Uh, she would look at the Founding Fathers. Um, she would look at uh, Newton. She would look at, um, yeah, she would look at herself. Uh, and, and you know, I think the probably the, the most iconic representative in recent world would be someone like uh, Steve Jobs. Um, mm. so many of these people, you know, it, it's not, it is not the case that you have to be some famous big name person. It's not the case that you have to be successful in business in a large way, but those are the people that are sort of visible. Um, yeah. and, and yeah, I think a lot of it, you know, it basically the, the, the central aspect of it is going by your own independent judgment, determining what is valuable to you and your life and going after it and doing everything you can to get it. Um, but in a way that is, that's integrated across your life, right? You're not going to say, um, you know, focus on your product no matter what. And I'm going to, you know, not, not have any family. If like not, not have any friends, not have any family. I'll, I'll step on people's backs and climb, you know, destroy anything in, in, in the path to get there. And her, her argument there is not so much that, that those it's not that those things supersede, but it's that, it's that those things are um, necessary in order to really have the value of the thing you're trying to build be be worthwhile. To to you know, she one of her big ethical ideas is this notion of a central purpose, and she she thinks it's extremely important for an adult person. It doesn't have to be the same throughout your life, but that you have a single unifying central idea that you that that every all of your energies and ideas and values are, are integrated around and that's something productive um so you know she you know it's it's not hanging out with friends it's not you know she said she 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 in an interview with playboy and i don't know why she interviewed why she interviewed with playboy but it's a really interesting interview. playboy has good interviews yeah so this was it was it was it's a really good one it's available on uh kindle there's a if you if you are on kindle unlimited you can get it free it's, i i really like it she talks about like um the interviewer asked you know could a could being a parent be your central purpose and she says maybe when they're young um 
after that, it, it, it probably doesn't take up, it's probably not enough of your time. But if you're young, if, if you're doing it as your central focus, it really has to be like, you come to it like a career. You're, you're researching all of the best different parenting methodologies and you're, you're constantly experimenting and trying to improve it. And you're making it this, this sort of central focus. Um, so I think that, that kind of anybody, you know, who has that kind of focus, but in a way that that's expansive, not not limited, right? The, the way the per, the guy who's like really really excited about their thing, and that shows through in everything that they do. But they still they still do other things, and it's it's clear once you see the how how it's all sort of tied together. I don't know if that's a if that's something that you have an idea of of people who are like that. Yeah. Um, and I think that part, the only objectionable part in that that people would would pick out is is the 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 selfish the egoistic aspect of that, which is mm-hmm. that you're not doing it for society. You're not doing it. You're not even doing it for the sake of the thing existing. You're doing it for because of what that means to you, because what it brings to you, how it represents your values, how it it furthers your life. Uh, and her, her sort of meta-ethical stance is that the reason we have ethical concepts to begin with is to to guide ourselves to live well. Uh, to live successfully, that human beings, because we we have free will and because we we operate in the realm of abstractions that can go wrong and, and we, we're not infallible, we need some explicit code to help us live well. Um, and that's what that's what ethics is for. That's what all ethical concepts like good and evil and all of those stem from that, but it's your life. It's your individual life and the goal is your own happiness. Um, which doesn't exclude others. It doesn't mean you don't care about others, but it means you care about others to the extent and it for the in the ways that they support your life and your values. Um, yeah. Okay. So I think I think I've got kind of a clear idea of this now, and there are there are maybe a few follow up questions I have. But so so you've got some kids. Yeah. They're they're incredibly cute. Have. Have you read to them the book Frederick? I have not. Frederick. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's good. And it it just strikes me as a deeply anti-objectivist book. Okay. <laughs> so, so it's, it's, it's a story of these mice and most of the mice in this little society. And it's beautiful, but perhaps not something that you want to read to your kids if you want to encourage them to be objectivists. So, so... This mouse um, spends the summer just kind of not doing very much while all of the other mice are, you know, gathering seeds and, you know, making preparations for the winter and so on. And, <laughs> and, um, and, and, and so then winter comes and they're all in this cave and it's very cold and they're like, all right, Frederick, what did you do for us this winter? We're starving. And, he goes and produces for them all of these memories and dreams of what the summer was like. And, you know, he, he comes out, he's, he basically reveals himself to be a poet and his contribution is just generating these sort of remembered qualia for everybody in, in such a way that they just start feeling good about things. And it's, that seems to fly. He seems to be kind of an anti objectivist figure in the sense that he's not, really productive well so i mean remember that rand was a novelist right like art producing art is productive you know 
from what you're describing it it's not it doesn't sound like he was like sitting there day after day thinking about you know what how his experiences he could turn it into poetry it doesn't sound like that was his sort of goal but but you could cry i feel like you could tell almost the same story and it looks the same which is not to say that it actually is right i'm, I'm sure you're yeah. right that that it's that this maybe it's just coincidence at the end that he happened to sort of pull this thing together that was beautiful and and life affirming and meaningful for the rest of the animals well, maybe it wasn't right maybe that's what they were going for, what the author was going for. How about, how about this? Yeah. Do you, do, do you think that you would describe Randy and heroes as ever just vibing? Yes. Um, and in fact, there's, there's a whole sec, there's a whole section of this in the fountainhead uh, where yeah. they do just vibe. Um, but yeah, so, so you know, I think there are there are a few ways to to look at it. One is, you know, you you have right. You're here to enjoy life, right? The the, the thing mm-hmm. that the meaning of life. I feel like when people ask what's the meaning of life, they're usually not asking a real question. But if there is a real question there, it's it's to be here and to enjoy it and to have it, you know, just to live well. Um, and, and that includes in the moment appreciating pleasures and appreciating and, and that that those are ends in themselves and mm-hmm. she would say that that like that pleasure to the extent that it doesn't undermine the rest pleasure is an end in itself that pleasure is valuable it doesn't mean she's a hedonist it doesn't mean you you're aiming to maximize pleasure but things that are pleasurable are ipso facto valuable um yeah. and the other thing is that like i feel like a lot of people will not like this char- characterization i don't know if you will but relaxation and connection and refreshing you know get you know just chilling out is important to be able to re-energize yourself to appreciate why you're doing the work you're doing right if you can get lost in work you can get lost in it and you can you can burn yourself out but even if you don't burn yourself out you can forget that there's a whole there's a the end is to actually have a better life right and so it's um taking time to just focus on like we're on a vacation where we're chilling out by the fire and just shooting the shit. Like that's an amazing, that's an amazing thing. It doesn't have to be in that moment, every single moment directly building towards some productive outcome. But I do think she would say, and I, I would, I think that you, you should explicitly to the extent that you've explicitly conceptualized your life at all, you should see that as integrated you shouldn't see it as separate as disparate you shouldn't see it as in contrast in contradiction with your core thing you see it as part of the overall life you're living and part of what makes all of the rest possible um does that make sense yes yeah it does um i I have one other two other questions about this yeah i and i'm not trying to put you on the spot they're just things that i'm thinking about immediately put me on so so in the fountainhead which i haven't read but yeah. I sort of know the contours of it. The The guy's an architect. And yeah. I'm curious what architectural style you would most identify with Rand. I, th- I think the guy in the book like, is making some kind of maybe even brutalist work. But I often think about Ayn Rand as being pretty art deco. Yeah, so it's it's definitely not brutalist, and in fact, so she the modernist is the modernist school sort of features within the story as like you know the, the the main character architect is sort of 
seen as positioned against all the classicists and you know the the renaissance and and all of that right like uh, gothic style he, he's positioned against that and then people call him a modernist and but the modernists are like no they're he's like they're just building you know unadorned boxes with no structure and just putting things together which i don't know that that's actually brutalism but i think that sort of is in that vein yeah. um i I can't say for sure. I know she liked Frank Lloyd Wright and his style. Um, mm. And I think that was part of, I think that was definitely part of the inspiration. Um, you know, the, you know, it, he, you know, the, to the extent that there's explicit architectural principles, it's, you know, things like form follows function that the, that you should use the right materials and the right form for the purpose of the job and the site. Um, and that you shouldn't reproduce like in and in particular that the the materials you're using de, de, demand you know, determine the ornament and the form that mm-hmm. you shouldn't make make imitations of past buildings um, that were done in different materials and you know had features that were relevant to those materials you should do um, in new materials each each thing should be its own work and also that the the work should have a unified a, something unified that it's conveying to the extent that buildings convey something right it should be built around a central idea central theme um i can't say too much about style you know this, this i'm definitely not <laughs> a very uh, artistic person myself um but that's that's the most i can say i think about about that yeah yeah okay and my my one i think that's beautiful and i think maybe that at least the way that you laid it out you know if, if you think about constructing your own life in such a way you know, you can imagine yourself as being some set of materials. And I think there's something deeply individualistic about this. And I don't mean that in an antisocial way. But if you were to think about constructing yourself in your life as some some kind of a building, some kind of a structure right. out of materials that are entirely your own, and and treating yourself as that kind of work and slowly sculpt, sort of um, sculpting yourself over over time, learning as much about yourself as you can and turning yourself into just the greatest expression of yourself that yes. you possibly could. I, I see that as pretty beautiful and maybe not. It feels somehow qualitatively different than Nietzsche. Although maybe there's some kind of, do, do you think Nietzsche influenced Ayn Rand? I mean, yeah, I mean, so she, she, she read Nietzsche. She admired him when she was younger. She ended up disavowing a lot of his stuff. And basically that, you know, she she saw him as accepting the other side of a false alternative, right? She'd say, okay, the traditional altruist mode says you have to sacrifice yourself to others. Um, Nietzsche comes along and says, no, you sacrifice everyone to yourself. And to be clear, I'm not a scholar. I have not read Nietzsche. This is relating what I understand to her understanding. I haven't um, read anything. <laughs> um, and so, you know, her thing is like, she she viewed him and she, she viewed him as sort of poetically getting a lot of the right ideas in a certain sense, right? Like her, his, his style uh, resonated with her, but his actual ideas did not. And, and, you know, this, this notion of crushing everybody beneath you and, 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 and all of that was very much antithetical to what she believed individualism was, but she was absolutely an individualist, um, you know, an extreme individualist in the sense that you are saying, right? Like you craft your own self, your own life, you make it your, your own. Um, it's, it's, it's your own artwork. Uh, I think she would have, she would have liked that 
that framing. I like that framing, I guess. Yeah. Would would you say do do you do you think you could characterize I keep coming up with more questions and I think they're interesting and I, I hope I'm that I'm fun. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm not trying to needle you. No, no, no. You I, could, I like the needle. Go for it. Do, do you think you could characterize Howard's Conan as an objectivist figure? I couldn't because I don't know the story very well, unfortunately. Okay. Uh. It, <laughs> you, I just mentioned crushing at some point. And, you know, he does a lot of that. But in, in a sense, you, I mean, like, he's he's actually a pretty pro-social character, I yeah. think. I'm, I'm just going to go off on this for a second. You know, and, and he he's a barbarian. He's absolutely a barbarian. And he just goes and becomes this absolutely characteristic and I think reflective and thoughtful barbarian. I, I mean, you know, the Conan, Conan is played by Schwarzenegger is maybe something else. But I, I'm trying to go back in history now and identify other, other people who, are, who, are, who might be considered objectivist or Randian in, yeah. in their behavior, even without actually, actually having read her philosophy um barbarian objectivism so okay one other question that i had is do do you know if she ever read or was familiar with with taoism at all because i think i it seems like objectivism is almost perhaps opposed to say this idea of non-doing yeah, so I think it is opposed so i don't know about taoism in particular i do know she sort of was very uh contemptuous of eastern mysticism would be how she would put it in general uh so i don't know if she was specifically familiar that with that with Taoism. but yes i think she 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 was against the the idea of non-doing of of non-being that that comes up in in different ways in different philosophies east and west um that <clears throat> that that existence non-existence is not a thing, right? It's just stuff. There's no such thing as non-existence. There's no such thing as non-being. And that's a metaphysical stance, but she, she sort of applies that up the scale, right? Um, That, that if you go, if you look at what a, what a good life is, it's not defined by absences. It's not defined by what it's not. It's defined by what it is. It's defined by positive aspects that are actually pursued. Um, And this was actually one of her sort of core critiques of altruism, which is that, you're mo- when you really dig down, altruism is defined by the good is the good for not you, right? The good, the good is what you do for others. And like setting aside why she thinks egoism is correct, even if you ignore that part, that that's not really guidance to action. It's guidance away from action. Uh, so she had this notion of motivation by love versus motivation by fear, where you mm-hmm. can you can you can act in a way to avoid threats. Or you can act in a way to achieve values. And these are not commensurable. These are not sort of just alternate ways of looking at the same thing. They're fundamentally different modes of action. And that if you're, you know, she, she, her, her, one of her saying something along the lines of like, you know, acting, um, living your life on the premise of fearing death, you know, you fear death, we love life, right? You want to avoid the bad. We want to achieve the good. And I think yeah. she would put, these notions of non-being, non-doing in that context. Now, that doesn't mean she would never she would be against relaxation or or anything like that. But I do think it does fundamentally mean that if you're framing what you're doing as not being present or not having you know, having no particular nature, she would be against that. Now, okay. yeah, I think maybe one other sense of non-doing that might be relevant though is 
things where you're sort of consciously, explicitly acting and and sort of wa- formally walking, you know, very much in tight conscious control of your action versus letting your subconscious sort of go and and monitoring that loosely or not at all. And I think there she she is a much more nuanced view of like the, she she's very much her view of the subconscious is that it's it's sort of the autom- automatization of your conscious conclusions and actions over a lifetime. And so, and it can do certain things much better and much faster than you can do consciously. You know, it, you can, you can read her, her stuff on psychology and epistemology, and you can sort of extract the core notion of thinking fast and slow um, from it. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and she absolutely thinks that there are times where you really should not be tightly holding the reins you should you if you are confident if you are skilled if you're working in a space that you know then you 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 keep a sort of you you monitor it in the sense of you make sure that you keep you're keeping on goal but you just let it go and her biggest thing is she has um two books on she's a book on nonfiction nonfiction writing and fiction writing and a core part of the nonfiction writing process at least is you write your outline and that's a very sort of conscious explicit process but then when you're actually writing your draft you just write and her guidance is, you know, make sure, read the outline, make sure you know where you are, and then just go. Don't let the pen stop. And then when you edit, you can go back, but don't edit while you're writing. Um, so in that sense, I think there are certain, you know, I, I can't remember the name of the, the person who uh, interviewed about the Alexander technique, and I don't know what he's referring to when he talks about sort of not doing in that sense, but it seemed mm-hmm. like that might be a similar sort of thing of just like letting letting your automatized learned behaviors go and thrive in the domain where they're effective she would be in favor of okay interesting yeah there's a lot of subtlety here i i have (laughs) i i have i have a bunch of like randian or not randian questions but i think honestly i i could go on for hours and maybe i've hit diminishing marginal returns there so i'm I'm before that's a good segue into consciousness which you're interested in and i want to do that but i'm also first a bit interested about the meta with with objectivism and sort of, I, I guess, just a social or intellectual history of it from your perspective. Is that something you can speak to? Yes. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, there's, there's, it's a very deep story that you can read a lot about. I can sort of give a high level overview. So she born in, so uh, born in pre-Soviet Russia, um, her father, I think owned some kind of, some kind of store, some, some, and, when the revolution came, you know, everything about everything was taken and, and all of that, right? Everything that you would expect of a bougie uh, yeah. Russian uh, in, in the early 1900s. Um, and she she went to school for mathematics, but she always wanted to be, wanted to, uh, I don't know if she went, yeah, she always wanted to write uh, for uh, basically since she was a, t- a teenager. Um she moved to America as soon as she could get out. Uh, she saw the horrors of Russia. She became a screenwriter. Um, and I'll skip a bunch because this is more about her. She her first few her first few novels are not super successful. Nowadays they're much more popular, but at the time they weren't super successful. One of the big ones is um, uh, We the Living, mm-hmm. which is almost autobiographical. It's 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 set in Russia. It's, you know, it, it overlaps the 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 transition to the Soviet era and it's really like concretizing the horrors of of communism uh in the impact that has on an individual. Um and then she 
with the Fountainhead, it was an unexpected success. You know, she had to fight and fight and fight to get it published. And they didn't even, the, you know, the first printing was like minuscule. And then they very, very quickly had to do a second printing. It was a huge blow up. And then she became known. At that point, there starts being a little bit of a movement, people coming to her, people trying to like, there, some of the speeches and ideas are present in the Fountainhead as well. And people are trying to really understand what this is all about. Um, she then, you know, so there's a little bit of a movement there. Then she she publishes Atlas Shrugged, I think in the 50s. Um, and at that point, she's, you know, a superstar. Um, mm-hmm. it, it blows up. It's huge. You know, she um, there's a there's a movement centered in New York um, around what the, what's called the Nathaniel Brandon Institute. Um, mm-hmm. And it's basically like lectures and uh you know people within objectivism and her and herself kind of expounding on what the ideas are and answering questions and doing introductory material there's a newsletter there's you know it's it's this it's this really dynamic interesting growing thing um and she is over time sort of now she's moving into the nonfiction phase of her work she's focusing more on actually defining in an explicit way an external way what the philosophy is um, and so most of the nonfiction of her work comes from this period of her life. Um, many of it comes from sort of cribbing articles together. A few, there are a few times where she actually wrote sort of directed books. The, big, the, the most prominent example of that is she wrote an entire book on epistemology and concept formation, which I honestly think, you know, I, I love the, the ethics and the politics. I love all of it. But the epistemology is the thing that I think is most interesting and most useful and most, I don't think it's actually most unique. I think the rest of it is actually different as well. But I think it's it's the most surprising given mm. what people talk about with Rand. Like yeah. really the thing that I think she did that as far as I can tell, you know, nobody else had done or really has done in philosophy is, is ground, ground co- what concepts are and what concepts mean and how they mm. operate without any mysticism or platonic other world and also without subjectivism and without um, saying that it's all just word games, right? She, she found a third path that doesn't take one of those, one of those two sides and found a way to, to give meaning to concepts and, and, and ground them in perception, you know, and this is, you know, in philosophy, it's, it's a big problem. How do you get the one out of the many um, Mm -hmm. sort of thing? Um, I think she does an amazing job of it. I think it's it's a just sort of directly technical philosophical work. Uh, and yeah, if there's if if anybody is at all intrigued by anything I'm saying and they think that I might have anything any good judgment on this, go pick up Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology and just give it a try. Um, and that that was sort of the original topic that we had talked about was was getting at that. But I do think it's really technical and hard to get into the details. Uh, anyway, so so we're talking about the movement, right? She. There's this growing thing. There's, they've got a lot of people, um, people whose names you would know. Uh, Alan Greenspan was big Greenspan in her was, circle. Yeah. Um, there, and, and, you know, there are, there are other people. Um, and then, you know, I don't know what would have happened if this hadn't happened. But there, Nathaniel Brandon, who was running the Nathaniel Brandon Institute, was sort of her protege. They were, they were having, you could say it's an, it was an affair, but it was, you know, explicitly consented to by all parties and mm-hmm. and known by her husband and, and his wife. Um, I don't know the details of all of that, but I do know that he turned out to be cheating on them, not openly, um, mm-hmm. and lying about a lot of things and had sort of faked his way for quite some time, had gotten out of his depth. It was sort of seen as this philosophical genius, but couldn't match it. 
Um, and it basically fractured the movement. Um, and, and as far as, from what I understand, it also really kind of dampened her spirits in a lot of ways for quite some time. Oh, sure. Um, um, and so, you know, that, that was a big, so that was a big, took the wind out of the sails. This is also in the sixties and all of the, the counterculture and everything going on then was like surprise. It wasn't surprising in a certain sense. It seemed like it was, it followed on from everything that was coming, but it, it made people in the movement think, you know, they were thinking we're a few decades off from winning in, in a certain sense, from, from objectivism being mainstream, from it being known, from, from objectivists, objectivism's notion of capitalism being at least a real player in the political stage. And I think a lot of these, these factors sort of combine to say, no, this is not really happening soon. It's, it's much sooner than you think. Um, and so they, uh, the, the movement kind of, it, it continues on under Rand's guidance. And then after she passes, there's, there's a sort of sequence of these breaks of different, you know, different people are, you know, her, the, the, the philosopher she worked with most uh, after Brandon, it was this guy, Leonard Peikoff, he's still alive. And she left all of her, her estate and especially her intellectual property to him. And then they found it. He founded the Ayn Rand Institute, which is like based around spreading her ideas and preserving them um, and preserving the archives of her material, of her works and all of that. And throughout the, the past several decades, I mean, that was in the, the 80s. So in the decades since then, there have been several times where there's been a split. And as far as I can tell, it's about the normal rate of, of drama for... <laughs> yeah, yeah. For intellectual movements, but when I found out about it, as a, you know, I, I, I read Atlas Shrugged in ninth grade, and when I found out about all this, I was like, "What the heck? Why is it? Why is all this happening? Like, shouldn't we basically be aligned?" Um, and and a lot, of course, knowing what I know now, that's that's it's normal that this sort of thing happens. But I think it 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 it's cast as this weird culty thing in the public mind i think because of these things i think because there was an affair involved because people were really excited people you know like people talk about it like if you had a chance to to go to a lecture by aristotle wouldn't you do that right wouldn't you do everything you could wouldn't you move your life around to go to new york if you thought that's who this person was but from the outside if you don't appreciate that if you don't see that it looks really weird and culty um and so that has sort of been around the movement, but like like you were saying at the beginning, where like the the critiques don't seem very specific, and they don't really engage with what you know what was interesting in her books from your perspective, from a non aesthetic perspective. Like I really do think a lot of it is repeated echoes of somebody else's repeated echo of somebody originally actually objected, and then and then it's got this this association. I think it's similar things with the rationalists. Uh, I think you know the, if you ask the average person who is even aware of the rationalists what they think they are, they will tell you something that's a caricature that there's some maybe some small source of truth of it, but not really justified by anybody who's actually taken the time to to understand them. Um, and I think there's a similar thing going on in the movement. Um, so now the ARI is still around. Um, it's it's going decently well. Uh, they're they're trying. You know, I I don't I don't know what their plan is. I know a big part of what they want to do is just make sure the ideas and the, the actual original works still exist and are propagated because they're like, look, we don't know necessarily how to get this uh, successfully adopted, but we know that there's important ideas here that are currently only preserved in like the student to teacher relationship, right? There's oral history and there's, there's so much that would be lost if, 
if the movement dies out completely. And so let's hold the line. But I do think they're also working on trying to, how do we get this more broad? And I can I can go for a while about what I think is the right way to do that. But I think the the, the short of it is that there it's, it's a normal intellectual movement with all of the ups and downs that you would expect from that. Um, and, you know, there are people who are writing books based on the ideas and, and there are um, there are people who are, you know, writing philosophy articles, you know, in philosophy journals, kind of trying to get her stuff introduced in that in those spaces. Um, but, yeah, does that answer what you were looking for? Yeah, yeah. No, that yeah. that's very helpful. Um, I mean, I, I was curious. It, it's interesting to me. And again, I'm sort of conceptualizing it as something like rationalism, you know, this this. Um, intellectual movement with a name that is perhaps a little bit, <laughs> I don't want to say aggressive, but you know, yeah. it's like, well, we're rational, we're objective. Well, so uh, the, the, the name she wanted was already taken, which was existentialism. Oh, like, interesting. She wanted, I mean, I don't know if she would have ended up on that, but she said at one point that, yeah, like existence exists is the core of her idea that like all that is, is this reality. And, and, and then everything sort of follows from taking that seriously and looking out into the world. Uh, but yeah. it was already taken. So yeah, yeah it, it's, it's a bold name. <laughs> See, yeah, bold. That, that's good. Um, <laughs> one, one other question I, I had coming out of that, which I, I think was very helpful is you mentioned you mentioned something about winning and what I, what I was maybe curious about was, you know, setting aside for a moment, how that might occur. Yeah. What suppose, suppose that it won, suppose that, that objectivism won in some kind of a grand sense. Yeah. What would that look like socially? Like what, what kind of a vision is there? Yeah, that's, it's a good question. So I think I can say a few parts of it that are easier, right? It's, capitalism in the like laissez-faire completely um unregulated sense you know it's not anarchism there is a government but it's limited to you know legislature police force courts and just enforcing you know non-aggression principles she wouldn't have put it that way but that's yeah. acceptable kind of night watchman. um yeah uh yeah night watchman state kind of thing um and culturally you know again this is not central but i think you know you'd have intellectuals would 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 understand some of her framework and her ideas and would be speaking from a perspective of you know the the epistemological perspective and the ethical perspective of you know this is how you get at truth and this is this is what objectivity means in this field um and you know basing everything on individualistic value seeking um so you wouldn't have you wouldn't have the bioethicists uh you know uh, that you have today you would have you if to the extent what that the that fuck? now i love objectivism yeah i mean no yeah so you, you wouldn't have that you wouldn't have to the extent that there's like let's say there's a private form of something like maybe not the cdc but something like the fda right there's a private form of something that's like we're going to be a a third party verifier of medical drugs and devices and they will not primarily be focused on public health per se, right? They would be focused on the rational in our audience, the people who are who are operating at their best. What information do they need to make a good decision and and how do I how can I provide them that value? So you wouldn't have people lying about masks, right? Because they want to convince people to to behave a certain way. Um, yeah. You wouldn't have any of that, um, and and so that would be yeah. On the I think on the individual level, it's really, really, really hard to spell out because so much 
of of our morality even even in secular circles is very christian and very altruistic um mm. but it would be it would be virtue ethical right it would be you would you would talk about you would care about character you would care about uh living a a living a good life and focusing on like it would matter a lot more what people's careers are. I think it would be a lot more socially relevant. Like not that there would be one kind of career that would be okay. And one kind of career that wouldn't, but it'd be much, you, know, you would talk shop more, right? You would, you know, a big part of your social relationships would be talking about what is going on at work and successes in there. It doesn't necessarily mean the thing that pays your bills, right? There could be something else that's your work, but I think if we won this, that would be a much, much more common thing, right? Like, I'm I'm a, I'm weird even amongst the weirdos that we hang out with. I'm weird that I always want to talk about what I'm working on I'm, and what I'm interested in doing. And there are other people like that for sure, but it wouldn't be weird. Um, these are very superficial things. I mean, I think the 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 big thing is I think all of the um, I mean, just imagine there's no original sin. Imagine nobody believes in original sin, right? All of the anxiety and guilt. That comes up around and original sin in a secular forms like you know no wokeism no you know you're you're an individual you are capable of living a good life moral perfection is within your grasp and it is something you should strive for for yourself um, and everybody like that that everybody is to within their limits and within their understanding trying to perfect themselves in that sense I, I you know, it's very vague, and I—it's I, a good question. Um, I, I have a much better sense of like what my what has changed, what what my life would have looked like without objectivism um, yeah. than that. And and if that's interesting, I can definitely go into that. But I, I don't I don't really know. And I think part of the reason is it's there's so many uh, knock on effects, right? The only mm-hmm. first of all, the only people who I know about uh, who who have lived this are the kinds of people who read philosophy books, right? At some point, winning has to go beyond that, right? At some point, winning has to go beyond, mean going beyond the people who read philosophy books. It's a huge swath of society. So what does this look like when it's something that it's sort of something that you learn from family or from, you know, public speeches or from, you know, your 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 favorite movie? Like you have these little, these little maybe a few explicit ideas that are in your head and then some of the rest of it is a sort of sense of how life should be. A sort of yeah. aesthetic and, and all that. I don't know what that looks like when you're not this kind of person, because only this kind of person has ever engaged. Um, so yeah, um. yeah, no, that's good, and it. I I think that's very. It's I mean it, it's not an easy question, you know. And <laughs> I think maybe one follow up to that is, you know, we were talking about this idea of, you know people being like buildings and something that's self-sculpted as a function of material. I mean, when yeah. I think about original sin, aside from the literal meaning, you could almost just think about it as human nature exists. And perhaps even if it is perfectible in some sense, which, you know, even leaving that aside, maybe it's certainly not perfect from the get go. And I, I think that might be a bit of a different framing than than objectivism would would take up, but maybe maybe an important follow up question, not just for objectivism, but for any sort of philosophical, any sort of philosophy that has social aspirations, is what do you do with the existence of other types of guy? Yeah, so I think 
I think the type of guy that can be captured in this is broader than people think. Um, you know, um, but that being said, the social system that objectivism wants to set up is one where you're ultimately responsible for the consequences of being your type of guy. Um, and so to the extent that those other types succeed or don't succeed, right? Like a big part of Rand's ideas, the, the core philosophy and setting aside the aesthetics and setting aside the kind of person that is currently attracted to the philosophy, but the core ideas of the philosophy she believes, and I believe are, if you're, if you're going against them, you are to some extent undermining your own success, whatever, whatever success should mean to you, you are undermining it to the, to some extent, if you're not, if you're not following these things. So these are, these are not sort of principles of Ayn Rand's favorite kind of person. These are principles that she thinks are fundamental to living a good life, which can be very variable in the details, but some of the generalities uh, are the same. So that's the first part. The second part is, you know, will what happens with these other types of guy? Well, I think the the, the easy answer is they can't hurt me, right? <laughs> they, you know, they can do their thing. We, we'll do our thing. Um, you know, she, she has a phrase about there's no conflicts of interests between rational men. If people, if we disagree, one of us may be wrong, one of us may be right, but we'll find out and we both will profit from that. Mm-hmm. So if there's, if there's something fundamentally off within objectivism, maybe there's some, some detail on the edges. I think if it's something fundamental, it's different, but there's some detail on the edges that Rand gets wrong. And we live in a, a society and then somebody's like, you know what, I'm going to be this kind of person that, that goes against this particular notion. And if we saw what that meant and we saw why that worked better, either in some cases or in all cases or whatever, right? The expectation is we would all be paying attention to the extent that we thought this person might be a value and, and updating on that. Um, and so the, the, the idea is we, we benefit, we benefit to the extent that they're onto something good and to the extent that they're not, we don't suffer from it. Right. That's that's the social answer is you can do your thing. We'll do our thing. And there'll be there may be social consequences. We will. You know, it's very much very much in favor of discrimination. Right. We want to you know, we could refuse service and we can not hang out and we can, you know, you're, you we can disown our parents and all these sorts of things are, are you know, within the uh, within the scope of like what kinds of social actions would be appropriate. But there's still room to exist and if you're right well we'll all get to see it um does that answer that i think so yeah, yeah. it's i mean it, it was kind of a mushy question too and i think maybe not maybe not something that's always well addressed by anybody but it, it's definitely a question that i'm starting to be very interested in now yeah. what do you what do you do with the types of guy who are not <laughs> your favorite type of guy and yeah. i i'm going to start bothering people about that when they come to me with ideas. So um, you're about to have kids. So that's, that's something I, you have to think about yeah. what if your kid is, you're not, is not your type of guy. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I've, I mean, we've, we've talked about different, you know, in the abstract, but different possible like ways that our kids could grow up and be and, and what kinds of things would we tolerate versus what kinds of things would we like? All right. You do you, you can come back later if you change your mind, but that's too much, right? Are those, do those lines exist? And right now we're not sure. Um, but it's yeah. something that I think you, if you take it, if you take these ideas seriously, you have to be willing to say, even, even your child, even someone you deeply love, if they are so fundamentally undermining everything that makes your love for them meaningful, that you're only, you're only um, incentivizing it 
to to engage. And you can see, I mean, a- anything around the notion of enabling kind of looks mm-hmm. like that. Um, and a, this is not like a central thing. It's not an expectation that we think will happen, but it is something you have to think about. And then, of course, there's different. There's a more shallow notion of different type of guy. Like our kids will probably not be as like nerdy as we are, right? They're not going to be the kinds of people who read read the way we read. They're not. They they might be into very different kinds of things, and that I think will be fine. But it is a you do have to actually think about how you interact with that kind of person. Whereas otherwise, I can just be like cordial and hello, say hello, and like to the extent we interact, great. And then like if it was someone in my social circle that is just not that kind of person, we just wouldn't hang out. And that's okay, but that yeah. wouldn't be okay with kids. So I, I think it's an interesting, uh, it, think, an interesting wrinkle there. I mean, I think Christianity handles that pretty gracefully, like the 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 entire. I mean, this and this is boiling ideas down to a slogan, but but the entire <laughs> concept of you know hating the sin and loving the sinner, where sin can be you know perhaps anything that yeah is you know in some way like a type of guy that's repugnant. Yeah. So I, on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, I find that notion, not a kind of love that's meaningful or valuable. Like I don't want to be loved for something that has nothing to do with my actions or choices. I don't want to be loved for like the best gloss you can put on it is to, is that I'm being loved for my potential as a human being for what I could be. Uh, And that, that I can be okay with, but I do think there's a certain notion of love without being loved for. Right, just uh, that, that I I love this person, and you you that that there's no reason you love them, that you just love them, causeless connect, disconnected love, and like that sounds abhorrent to me. Right, the yeah. idea that like like if Alyssa came to me is like there's no reason I love you, there's no there's nothing about you I, that is particularly endearing. I just love you for you, for who you are, no matter what you do. I'm just like th- that's not why I love me. Right, I don't love me for some ineffable essence of Shay that's completely disconnected from what I do. I love the, the things that I do and the things that I, that I, that I think that I, I think are good. And all of those things are, are what I, I love about myself. And I would hope that's what, what other people would too. Is, is objectivism, does objectivism object to agape? Um, I don't know. I don't know what agape, I mean, I, I know it's one of the like forms of love Um um, okay. Yeah. I mean, if it's uh, just a quick Google, if it's unconditional love, yeah. yes, yes. I mean, it does. So objectivism has a notion of benevolence, which is a sort of general sense of men in general, other people in general are capable of being valuable to you. And, you know, it, this extends to life, you know, other living beings and sort of a, a, a very, a relatively weak notion of looking out for your fellow man in a very, very, very weak sense. Um, uh-huh. that, like, you know, the kind of thing where like, I am better off if the people around me are thriving and happy. And that's true if they're halfway across the world, but it's truer if they're halfway down the street, those sorts of things. But that, that goes away when you know for a fact that this person is not living up to what they could be. And of course, you know, objectivism believes in free will. You know, we, we, we think that you could change. And if to the, if, and to the extent you're willing to change, we want to support and help that. But outside of that, like, no, we shouldn't love you. We should, like, loving you, if we love you, that just diminishes our love for the people who deserve it, right? You can't, you can't give love, you can't say you love everything. If you love everything equally, that is injustice to the best, right? Because that, because then you can't, you can't reserve, you can't acknowledge, you can't give them what they deserve. 
um, if you've already given it away to everyone, it doesn't mean anything. It's a um, if that makes sense. So yeah, it would be against Agape. You're looking at like the Wikipedia introductory sentence of what Agape is. Yes. Yeah. Um, Interesting. <laughs> okay. That that actually seems like a pretty strong departure from what I what I see as maybe a still somewhat prevalent Christian ethic that exists. Yeah. And I mean, you you were talking about you know Christian ethics underpinning society to some extent or another, maybe less now than in the past. I, I need to think about that a bit, but um, the, the, this does seem like a pretty strong departure. I mean, I, I don't know that I would say this is necessarily Christian ethics, but I do mm-hmm. think, and the, you know, this is something that I've maybe seen one person convinced of this who wasn't already mostly on board ever in my life. But I do think altruism ultimately can't be justified outside of faith or whim. Like I, I, I don't, I don't think, you know, if you look at EA, like I, I engaged with EA quite a bit for a while because it was this, it's this interesting combination of they actually take it seriously in a way that many people don't. Yeah. Um, but like, so the, the thing that I was interested in is in doing all of the work that is required to actually like understand how your ideas manifest in reality, do you see the contradiction? Do you see the cost and it turns out a lot of them don't, right? A lot of them ruin their lives in ways that they're proud of, um, right? They 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 take jobs that they don't care about because it's what that that aren't meaningful to them because it's what's meaningful to save lives. And they 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 give away money to people they don't know, people they don't care about, people who won't impact them, and live very poor lives themselves. Um, and it's not to say that I'm against any form of charity. It's not to say that I'm against wanting to save lives. Um, but I do think the fundamental notion of saving the most lives is the most important thing or, or finding ways to make altruism more effective. I had hoped the effectiveness would outweigh the altruism, but it turns out the altruism poisons the effectiveness and they are very, very good at destroying themselves. Um, ultimately is, is what I've seen. So, okay. So I've, I've told this parable before on the podcast, the, the apocryphal Abraham Lincoln parable, for those of you who didn't hear it the other time, and I have no recollection where I gave the, where I where I spoke about it, but Abraham Lincoln and and some contemporary are traveling down the road in a carriage, arguing about whether people act selfishly or or whether altruism is in some sense a real thing, and Abraham Lincoln is denying the existence of altruism, and they're going down the road, and he's in his fresh suit and and his top hat, and they see a muddy field, and a pig is drowning in the muddy field. And Abraham Lincoln calls for the carriage to be stopped and he jumps out and he jumps into the mud and pulls the pig out and wrestles him to the ground and saves his life. And then he gets back into his carriage with his his suit absolutely destroyed. And his friend says, well, I guess that resolves our conversation. And Abraham Lincoln says, what are you talking about? And his interlocutor says, well, you were arguing against the existence of altruism, but here you just destroyed your suit to save that pig. And Abraham Lincoln's response is, I would have felt awful if I didn't. That was completely <laughs> selfish. Yeah. So egoism in the sense that Rand means it is not what's called psychological egoism, which is that you're always essentially you're always sort of all your actions are motivated, are are directed towards some ends that that come from you um, and that you would in some sense endorse. It's really about are you doing things that are actually values to your life? And it's your values are not the same thing as your preferences. They're not the same things as your feelings. It's, it's an objective notion of what kinds of things makes life for someone like you. And then for you in particular, 
makes life for you possible and and worth living. Um, and there she she holds that that is a question of objective fact of of whether something is valuable or is not. And egoism doesn't just mean you do the thing that makes you feel good or you do the thing that you think you should do for your immortal soul. It means you are actively working towards benefiting your own life here and now in this world. Um, and so, you know, it would not be it would not be egoistic in Rand's sense to give up a career you love to live near a parent that you resent but feel obligated to support, right? Assuming, you know, let's, the, the, the parent you resent part is important in there. There could be reasons you do that. But in that particular case, that would not be egoistic. It might be the case that if you didn't do that, you would feel really guilty and awful. Um, but you're wrong to do that, right? You should challenge that emotion. You should challenge the ideas that underlie the emotion, right? The emotion. You should feel don't... guilty if you do that. No, no, no. Actually, no. She's very, very clear that you should not feel guilty for your emotions. You should not feel guilty for what you've automatized. You maybe should feel guilty for the actions you took that led to that being automatized. But here and now, you're you are who you are. Like to the extent that you are at all worth, like I mean, if you think you're completely worthless then the only thing I open for you is suicide. But if you think there's anything worthwhile about you, that has to include all of the mistakes you've made in the past, right? That has to include all of that because that's part of who you are. You, you would be someone else if you would be something else if you didn't have that. So you have to take that as it is today. And then the question is, what do I do moving forward, right? Now that I know, I know I have that feeling. Do I accept that feeling uncritically? Do I act on it without understanding it? Or once I understand it, do I shut my mind down and say, I can't challenge that? Or do I say, no, I'm going to understand it and I'm going to try to act the way, and maybe it'll be painful. Maybe it'll be hard, but at the end of the day, it will be better than continuing to um, to reinforce the very thing that made me feel this awful way about doing this thing that was good for my life, right? The other, the only alternative is you destroy your life even more, right? You don't have an alternative to, it might be painful. So it's not like everything's going to be happy. Everything's going to be, you know, if you accept objectivism and act on it consistently from today forward, your life is going to be bliss. Uh, but it's, it's the only option in her view to getting better, um, to living a better life. Um, does that, yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, it does. Um, Okay, so we're over an hour, which is totally fine. I'm not in a rush. I have no time limit, so cool. Um, yeah. I, I did want to give you some time to talk about what's going on with consciousness and consciousness research. Yeah, I, I have very few opinions about that, but maybe <laughs> I'll develop some over the course of listening to you. So, sure. tell me about that. What What are you interested in? So, I'm okay. I'm really interested in the 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 best way to talk about it is the so-called hard problem of consciousness. I have problems with that framing, but it's probably the one that's most accessible. Okay. This uh, is very interesting to me as somebody who's going through nicotine withdrawal. The major symptom on my side is getting really angry about the hard problem of consciousness. So <laughs> please continue. Yeah. So basically, you know, I'm really interested in the way I would frame it is how do we integrate the, our understanding of the physical sciences and the material world I don't even like material world. I don't even like physics. Let's say physics as we understand it now, chemistry as we understand it now, biology as we understand it now. How do we un integrate that understanding with the phenomena of experience and consciousness? Um, what the fuck is qualia? Tell me. Yeah, tell me yeah, exactly. What the fuck is qualia? Um, and so the, the first thing I'll say 
and this makes me a crackpot in many, many circles, is that consciousness Good. is real, right? Okay. Like we are aware of the world. Um, I'll also say we have free will, but we don't even need to go that far for most people sure. to write me off completely. Consciousness is real. We're aware of the world. And it is not like physics. If you look at like the standard model and general relativity and like the basic concepts that are present, right, of particles and fields and locations and masses and charges, you can't put those concepts together in any way to get an experience. It's not that you can't even explain why humans are conscious. Is you can't even describe a situation purely in the concepts of physics in which conscious beings arise. Like there's no there's no possible way to reduce it. Doesn't mean that it's inherently dualistic. Doesn't mean that there there might be some other thing, some other description of the world that includes both our current description of physics and mental experience that might be possible so i'm not i'm not like sort of wetting myself to a dualistic stance but i do think the ontology of our physical theories is not rich enough to describe conscious experiences um do you, do you are and i'm i'm going to be stepping into in, in, into what you're rolling on and that's <laughs> just and I, i'm gonna apologize for that in advance Go for it. so so would you are you sort of moving in the direction of describing consciousness as sort of an emergent property? I don't know. So this okay. is okay. So here's actually a problem that I have with almost. So first of all, it's only relatively recent, the past you know three decades maybe, that you could actually even ask these questions in any way in academia. Um, the behaviorists, hmm. like I, so I didn't even I didn't even realize this how long how much this was down to the behaviorists. I thought this was a long-standing thing. But if you read William James publishing in 1890, Principles of Psychology, he's openly like sort of embracing notions of conscious experience and all of that mm. uh, as as something that can be studied scientifically. And then that mm. goes away with the behaviorists. And there are people who sort of talk about you, you can talk about it in philosophy. You can't really talk about it in science unless you define it away, unless you redefine it to be the external behaviors we have associated with it or some computationalist cognitivist view of, of what brains are doing. But there's no real discussion for, I mean, there's some, but there's not much real discussion of like what actual experience is and how that can be a, um, how can that, that can be something that's studied. The closest that you get is psychophysics. Yeah. Um, but but even there, it's it's all framed in terms of response report report response kinds of things. You you have to sort of read into it to actually see that oh they're actually talking about a particular experience that the the uh, subject has. Okay, and um, and just to be very clear, when you say that it can't be talked about, do you you mean that it's sort of socially just yeah, not talked yeah, about rather right. than it's impossible? Okay. Oh no 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 no. It's it's a social thing. It's not like it's not like we don't have the the tools for it. It's just that mm. it you're it's it's you're a weirdo, you're a crackpot, you're a mystic, you're a dualist. All of these things, all of these words are thrown at you. Um, I'm so all anyway, these things, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so this it's only fairly recently that people are even trying to really grapple with this problem, and the the thing that almost everybody does not everybody but almost everybody comes in trying to have a theory before they start right they, mm -hmm. they think oh what if consciousness is like this like like this in like a very very big general we've solved the whole problem sense now let's see if we can find the evidence that supports that rather than being inductive about it and saying let's actually look at specific phenomena that we know about relate them to specific other phenomena and see if we can extract causal laws that on on a small scale, and then finally at the end we can generalize to a grand theory. Mm -hmm. um, so you asked you asked like, um, do I believe in grand emergence? Maybe or maybe. So there's this notion called um, 
panproto-psychism, which essentially says that matter down at the smallest levels, maybe it's not conscious, but it has some attributes about it that we can we will eventually see sort of combine into consciousness. And so there isn't some radical emergence where at certain thresholds consciousness suddenly appears. It's a sort of gradual buildup of these proto-psychic uh, things into a grand psych- uh, consciousness. And is that I don't sort of the what is it like to be a bat, for example, is some kind of a midpoint of you know, what, what is it like to be, you know, some, some midpoint between what is it like to be a bacterium versus what yeah. is it like to be a bat versus, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and not only that, not only are those questions answerable if you're a panprotopsychist, but also there's, you can't really say what is it like to be a rock, but you can, you can see why that might be sort of a halfway meaningful question that you could gesture towards, right? There's some of the properties of being a rock are, are commensurable in some sense. And my answer is I don't know, and nobody else knows, right? Nobody else like there, and and so all of these ideas of like like you know there's yeah another scale of is like radical emergence. Like you need if you have brain structures of a certain kind of a certain complexity, suddenly consciousness disappears, and I think we just have to be open to any of these possibilities, but we shouldn't be trying to evaluate between theories. We should be we should be inductive we should be doing experiments and building up from the small to the large and not starting from the small large and seeing if we can find it in the small mm-hmm. um and so yeah i mean this is this is a frustration i have with almost everybody who is doing this kind of research today like you can find you have global workspace theory you have integrated information theory you have um this rationalist associated group called called qualia research institute which is trying what, to really yes <laughs> um, trying to do these things and like I applaud that they are actually trying to take these things seriously, but they they put the cart before the horse. I don't see how they can be successful when there are just so many things we don't we don't know about. Like like I mean, I honestly think one of the big things that will need to be done for us to be successful is we just need more words to describe experience. Like yeah. we just do not have enough words that are really successful at carving up experience space effectively um and conveying that to other people and it's not i'm not i don't agree with um nagel in what it's like to be a bat that 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 this is somehow fundamentally uncommunicable by human language like poets Mm. do this right art like you can do this you can convey an experience someone's never had now of course we always do that in terms of sensory modalities that we already have and maybe if you actually move to a new modality, you, you can't bridge that gap. But still, there are a lot of things that just human to human, we could conceivably explain. And if you have 15 minutes to sort of describe how you got into the situation and, and what are the different factors of it, maybe you could sort of convey the idea of what you're doing. And so I don't understand how we can expect, like we need, we need somebody like, like we need Darwin, right? Just looking at the animals and un- looking at how they act and how they're different from each other and how they relate to each other and you know what happens to the animals over here and the animals over here. But we need to we need to do that with respect to like different kinds of experiences and feelings people have. Um, yeah. So so I mean I think what what does this what does this research program look like and what what kinds of experiences are you interested in? I mean in some ways it seems like this is almost just a matter of well. Let's get some poets. Let's get some authors. Let's write. I don't know, like yeah. thousand years of English literature. <laughs> so that's so okay. To be clear, this is just one of the paths that I think we ought to go down. But yeah. yes, I actually think I actually think one 
path that would be really fruit would potentially be really fruitful is finding the best poets, finding the people who are the write the most evocative language, and seeing if we can understand, you know, not what what are they doing from an artistic standpoint, but just specifically how do you evoke this particular notion? How do you when you said that and I knew exactly what you meant in a felt sense, what were you doing there? What were you distinguishing this from? Um, you know, uh, you know, all of those sorts of things, I think are I think there is value there. The other, I mean, another thing is just like attending to your own experiences in very delimited, focused ways. So one thing that I've already done, I ended up moving on from this for various reasons. But one thing that I've already spent a, a, some time on is I wanted to get at the qualia of, and I hate qualia, but it's the best word. I hate all of the words in this space. Um, sure. Get at the qualia of um, understanding, right? Like as as I as you go from not knowing anything about a topic. To getting a little bit of a sense of it, to 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 being able to having some facility with it, to like really deeply grokking it, right? Like, what is that? How does how does your feeling? What does it feel like to think about the subject, to to use the subject? How does that feeling change over time as you're developing understanding? Um, and so I was going through a bunch of math textbooks and teaching myself what was in those books and like sort of attending to. What would what I was doing? What was going on? And I did find some. You know, this was a few months of work on the side. I did find some interesting things that maybe not super novel, but at least I had not seen described in the way that I described them. Right. So the, one of one of the things. So I, I I talked about needing words. I found a um, a website that generates nonsense English words. Right. It's hmm. words that sound like English, but they're not. There's not a real word. And I was like, all right, because I I don't want to like take i don't want to coin a neologism based on what i think this feeling is doing or what i think this feeling means because i don't know i just want to name it i just want to identify what it is and then maybe later we can etymologically build an you know a, a more useful name for the categories that come out of it one mm-hmm. of the things that came up was what i call uh what i called ordeation and that's this notion of when you're reading through and this this was i was working through math textbooks maybe this only happens in math but when you're working through a paragraph right and you sometimes some of the things that people say, some of the things that the, the textbook says will sort of trigger a sort of phantom vague sense of going through the problem that they're describing or like seeing how that connected. So it's like it's a sort of like vague shadowy notion of what you would do if you were actually like working through a problem set that relied on this principle. Or that relied on the principles this relied on, but it's very sh- it's like vague. It skips parts, and it, there's a sort of sense of like confirming understanding that mm. I felt like went along with it, right? Like does that vague sense match up? And if it's something didn't match, I'm like, oh wait, I don't get it. And then maybe yeah. I have to work through something more explicitly, right? And so this is a phenomenon that happened over and over again, um, and it's the kind of thing where like in principle, if we had if we had an appropriate measurement tool for the brain and that's another thing. Like I think fMRI has serious, serious problems. EEG within its domain is good, but its domain is, you know, it's got very, it's, it's very um, relatively weak for localization of the signals. Like we don't have very good techniques. If we want to get into human brains, if we want to get into animal brains, we've got great techniques. When I get into human brains, we don't really have good techniques, but if we had good techniques, right. I could actually like, we could measure what is going on in the brain when you're ordeating versus when you're actually working through the problem and like what mm. is that difference right and then can we can we localize not localize in the sense of like where in the brain but can we like understand what is happening differently in these cases and and then maybe can we do some control of like can we can we try to force 
force it into the the more explicit or the more vague uh, way with some kind of intervention, either on the physical side or on the mental side. Um, and, and there's a lot of room that you could just toy with that. And I think, as I, I said, psychophysics is the closest that we get to this. Um, and for people who don't know, psychophysics is, you know, very you know, simple studies to find like the thresholds of sensory awareness, right? Like um, you have two lights, you, you, you have two lights and you're trying to say which one is brighter, right? Psychophysics is trying to figure out the minimum differential intensity between those lights mm-hmm. before you can reliably do that. Um, so it's, it's, and it's quantitative and it's, it's very much trying to like measure, measure certain aspects of experience, but it's, it's a pretty delimited in its current space. Um, but yeah, so that, those are one class of experiments. Another kind of thing that I want to look at. So there's, um, there's a phenomenon called sensory substitution, where if you have a, um, prosthetic device, that is meant to, you know, <clears throat> meant, meant to supplement a weak sense, you know, like the blind man's cane, something like that. Um, if you if you gain facility with it, and if especially if it's a, it's a high bandwidth kind of device, at some point, some people experience qualia like the original sense. So the most famous example of this is the, a notion of uh, of a, a device where you you feed visual information into a camera, and then there's like uh, pressure points on your back that are pressed that sort of correspond to that visual signal. And as you learn to use that visual sig- that signal on your back to um, to navigate the world, it starts kind of sort of in a weird sense seeming like you're seeing things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, and, and you almost lose the feel of things pressing on your back unless you explicitly attend to it. Yeah. Um, and to me, like, there's a whole wealth of fascinating things that you could look into there. And almost everybody just cares about this as, like, how does this interact with helping people with disabilities? And, like, I don't care about Like, uh, yeah, great. If a blind person can navigate the world better, obviously that's great. But, like, we, we're conveying the same interma- information through a radically different channel and having some somewhat of a similar experience, right? That, that implies some interesting hypotheses about how experience relates to the information you're extracting, right? Um, uh-huh. you know, the, the extreme hypothesis would be that if you if you could feed the exact same information in through a completely different channel, it would be qualitatively exactly the same once you learned how to extract it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that, I, you know, that doesn't answer the question, but that is something that is like that seriously constrains the possible answers if that's true. Um, possible so answers can, to hard consciousness. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's because because it it, it 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 points toward either there's layers early in your brain that make information modality agnostic, mm-hmm. or that something about the way consciousness arises is like somehow connected to information in the information theoretical sense or in the human perspective sense. Right. That that's something about the laws that we need to find somehow relate to to information content of what we perceive. And we, that, that is a radically different kind of physical law than we currently deal with. Uh, so, so if you can, if you can navigate yourself, say using yeah. signals that are put in via your back, yeah. do you think that you could see red from, from these inputs on your back? I don't know. I don't think so from these inputs on the back, but one of the things that I actually started building a device for, and I, I still have it, but I, so I can get in, actually want to get into another thing that this leads into, but started building a device for what if we could see infrared? And the idea was is an infrared camera. Um, and the, the initial prototype was 
we had basically like a bullseye, right? So it was an infrared camera and it, it was a six, uh, eight by eight grid of pixels. And, you know, we drew like concentric, four concentric circles and you, you would hear a different note in your ears, like a different pitch based mm-hmm. on, uh, based on, and, and a different pitch at a different volume based on how much intensity was in each ring. Right. And so mm-hmm. with that, if you could learn to extract information from that, you might be able to sort of like na- navigate and find something by heat. You might be able to catch a ball, maybe. Um, you know, there's certain things you couldn't do, but you might be able to sort of notice which things are hotter and colder and conceivably integrate that in with some kind of directional positional information. And the question that came out of that is like, would you learn to see infrared? Right. Like, would that be a different color? Would it? Would would your would your brain come up with a new qualitative experience to cover that if you got it at enough detail um that's so, i mean yeah, go ahead so why not why not do this why not i mean so so there are and this is going to be a little bit this is going to be a little bit squishy because i don't remember that much about the way that other organisms perceive infrared but i mean i know certain birds can right and their eyes have evolved down it the, their eyes evolved from a, a similar common ancestor from ours. So so imagine that there were a protein, not the not just a rod, not just a cone, but some specific protein in the bird eye that permitted them to perceive infrared. Yeah. And suppose that you were to and this also won't work because there's cross infection, but why not just genetically alter assuming you could do this? one eye in a given person to contain those specific that that specific yeah. protein construct that would permit the the perception of infrared and have have a person with one eye that had that facility and one that didn't yeah and maybe even do it from a young age so that it were relatively well integrated yeah i i don't know it's interesting to i mean you have people already who have one eye that's significantly weaker than the other mm-hmm. and things like that and and in in contexts where both eyes are available, from everything we can tell, it's it's a unified visual field. It's only when one of the eyes is like constrained or blocked, and you really right. have to rely on the weak eye that they notice. Yeah. Um, so my guess would be, and this is this is sort of a common uh, a common uh, identification about the way consciousness works. It's really trying to integrate. It's really trying to tie everything together. Um, Daniel Dennett, like I really did not like. The, his book to the extent it was actually about consciousness but i think mm-hmm. he 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 hammered home in a really good way that you know we need to distinguish you need to distinguish the the particular sort of entry points of information and the paths the information flows into what the integrated story the information tells is right it almost doesn't matter how the information gets there as long as the information is there um, and if the brain can integrate it, if the brain can sort of build a picture, and I hate the term build a picture for other reasons, um, if, if it can sort of, if it can put it together and, and come up with it and, and see the world, there's, there's no reason for it to tell you that one eye is weaker, right? Because that's not what you're trying to do. You're not trying to know how your eyes are working. You're trying to know what the world is like. So yeah. biologically, it's the goal is to find out what the world is like, and the brain is going to do whatever it can to abstract over particular differences within your own, um, within your own sensory systems. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Um, so, so I think my main question with this, and then maybe we can bow out is what do you ultimately see as some of the, I mean, 
I, I think when you look at a science or when you look at wanting to pursue some particular vein of science, there are maybe two big outcomes that you can hope for. And one of those outcomes is you get something useful out of it, right? right. Like, you know, you do some physics. Hey, I can do fusion now. Energy is cheaper, yeah. whatever. The, the other one I think is maybe coming up with a new narrative about how you describe the world to yourself and yeah. perhaps, and, and usually with this sort of thing, you almost want to relate it to being human. So, so like in a sense, when I look at, when I look at particle physics, for example, I don't think that there's necessarily anything deeply interesting about, you know, muons that I wouldn't get from just knowing, Hey, there are these atoms, these atoms exist. There's something about the way that the universe is formed from, from these atoms. They're sort of, they're, they're not quite a fundamental particle, but everything sort of exists at this particle level. And yeah. that, you know, you, you sort of get a vibe about the universe from that. So what, what kind of a narrative do you see falling out of some of this consciousness research? If it's, if it's successful or alternatively, what are some of the practical aspects or yeah, do either so, of those exist? Yeah. So I, I think both of those exist. And this actually, I could talk for another few hours about this because this is a, <laughs> I, the topic that I mentioned about alternatives to academia ultimately ties into this. Yeah. Um, so I, you're confused. I can answer that next, but the, yeah. yeah. Um, so I do think, first of all, I think there is a lot in terms of like the narrative about yourself, right? We already have, that from other insights like bio evolution and notions of yeah. evolution have deeply impacted the way we think about ourselves especially the more intellectual people think about how their actions and and their behaviors and their their characteristics what what they mean and why they are the way they are and how they relate to the world uh that, that's deeply fundamentally changed the human experience mm -hmm. uh in a way that i agree that like muon, the knowledge of muons has not um and i think there would likely be a lot of that one of the things that i <clears throat> expect, not expect, but hope in if, if everything successful will come out of this is I think we might be able to put debates about free will to bed, right? Like, hmm. uh, I, you know, this, we, this is a whole philosophical topic, but like free will to me obviously exists. We all know it exists. We all see it. And nothing that we see later, nothing that we see in physics can contradict it because we've been operating, using our free will the whole way to get there, right? You can't, you can't, have a, a final conclusion completely like if, if free will didn't exist none of the cognitive processes that we use to learn about the determinism of physics would have been valid so we wouldn't know any of it but that's a philosophical thing my point is that any real answer if that if that's true if that's true any real answer to this question will have to explain how that works from like we'll have to be able to integrate with like thermodynamics and and questions of energy and fields and all that like and forces right how does that actually how how can you build a a system of the world that integrates in a, a notion of agent causation and 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 actual will right does because our current theories don't allow that so I'm interested in that from the perspective of how we answer that question but if we do answer that question then that will be sort of like the a little bit like the way evolution fundamentally changes the kinds of religious beliefs you can have it doesn't rule out religion but it changes you know it, it rules out very a, a lot of different reasons to think religion is true and a lot of different notions of what how religion works mm -hmm. uh if you take evolution seriously i think similarly ruling out free will will be you know, people will will be harder if we get this right um i also think 
on a sort of on a borderline between the practical applications and the the, the human applications, uh, if there is a, such a distinction, the technological applications and the human applications, let's say, I think it's possible that we get some things like uh, experience machines, right? I can I could you know send you a memory of what something was like, and I could you know if if we know if we know how experiences connect to the underlying physical forms, and we can manipulate the underlying physical forms, then then we can you know, induce the experience in you. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of speculation there, but, but like imagine the kinds of connection. I, you know, one of the things I've thought about, I actually like a possibly a real lie detector could come out of this. And like, what mm. are the implications of that? Right. How do you, like, I've actually, I've actually thought about like, I would want to hire somebody whose sole job was to help me build this in a way that it would be used more for good than for evil <laughs> kind of things. Um, like, mm. you know, how do we do the rollout? Cause you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where in a world where everybody knows everybody has a lie detector, that's one thing, but in the transitioner world, uh, people could get radically screwed in crazy ways. Um, so why yeah, do you I- want to destroy society? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. So, to some extent, the answer is because it's there, um, <laughs> right? Like, like not because society is there, but because the answer is there, right? Because it's possible, that's one. And then the other side is because I actually think that that rationality can win, that goodness, like the, the things that I think are good, the things that I think are valuable are valuable because they're practical, because they're useful, because they're viable. And so I think that, you have to be careful about it. You have to be thoughtful about it in certain cases. But I think the net expectation for most technologies is that it can radically improve human life. And I know there are exceptions. And I know there are cases where that's that, that won't what be the case. What do you think a given government would do if it could induce right. any yes. quality it wanted in anybody? <laughs> oh, no. I mean, no. That's I mean, like, exactly. I'm... No, no. So, yeah. I would not if, – if I were – on a path that led to that, I would not release it into today's world. Like yeah. I, there would, there would need to be significant, significant changes. However, my expectation is that if I were able to get on that path for myself, that would have such big benefits for myself and for the people I trust that that yeah. gives us a leg up on winning on that other front. So, like, it's not the case that I think you just oh, open. It's not the uh, what is it the I. Ugh, I find box. this con- huh? No, no, no. I find I find the, this analogy kind of sending with the quaka analogy for oh, rationalists. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not that we assume right now today everyone's good and everyone's well-meaning. It's yeah. that we assume that you can get to such a world and that it's worth working towards such a world. And but you have to do it in a specific way. So I would not just release it today. Uh, I would work very hard to find a way to have it benefit the people who are helping build the world that I want to release it in. And if I can't, I'll just keep it to myself, right? Um, To the extent that's possible. I do acknowledge that there is a little bit of existential risk kind of thing if I'm right and if I'm successful and if all of this works and if I can't control it, right? If all of these ifs add up, right? Yeah, maybe maybe that ushers in an age of endless tyranny and death and destruction, I I want to be aware of that, but I don't think that's the likely outcome. And I don't think that's, I think as I progress, if I'm successful, I'll be able to actually see, I'll know more about how to avoid it. It's, 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 and this is actually, you know, complete tangent, but 
the approach that <clears throat> Miri had originally was, you know, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, yeah, um, was taking for a while. I don't know if they still are about <clears throat> AI safety. Is to if you agree that AI safety is a real problem, their answer was try to solve the problem up front before we do any of the work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And I actually don't think, even if that's the only right way to do it, I actually don't think human knowledge works that way. I don't think you yeah. can do it that way. So if you're going to address the problem, you have to actually build AI like systems and you need to do it carefully and you need to do it in small scale and you need to do it under control and put the AI in a box, but before you make it, you know, super intelligent. Um, but you Frog and you won't... toad cookies. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, well, yeah. But you won't know. You won't know until. You won't know until you actually see how it acts in the world, how to mitigate it to the extent that it's possible to mitigate. Um, and yeah, you said frog and toad cookies. Like you need to be someone who you trust to to have integrity and to hold to the value, the, the importance of this kind of thing. I don't think. I mean, this is not a fundamental thing because I think if I if I get to the point where I'm anywhere close to that happening. I'll have a lot more resources to address it because I mean, this is the other thing, you know, getting into the the bigger picture of my model for how research should work is knowledge is power. So knowledge should be valuable, right? If, if we are finding out true things about the world, if we are able to discover something real and true, we should be able to leverage that. We should be able to, to, to build something valuable, a real product out of that. Um, we should not need to beg for handouts, whether from the government or not, to to learn more about the world. Um, if we if we actually found something, um, and so so one of the one of the strategies I want to try to employ is every question that I have, I want to find some saleable product that requires an answer to that question in order to be built or sold successfully. Um, and so, for example, for this the infrared. Um, <clears throat> The, the the infrared qualia thing, right? I was building a an actual device that I would hope that I could potentially patent in order to sell to like the video game industry or to some. That you seems know, like art- government involvement. <laughs> what a patent! Oh well, so we can get into <laughs> we can get into intellectual property. I believe in intellectual property. I think it's a form of property, but legit yeah, like let's we can that's a whole separate thing that's the whole sci-hub thing um which got me got people very upset at me oh um, yeah people were so mad <laughs> uh, sort of doxing me in the only way you can dox a real name person just by telling personal secrets about them uh yeah. to the world uh that was fun uh but yeah so so yeah and, and the idea is that eventually if you do this well enough you you build up capital Right, because if you if you d- develop a product, you build up capital, but you and, and to, but it also gives you gives you skin in the game to make sure you have to be right. It has to be real. It can't just be, you know, you got your peers at the journal to accept it. It has to be something that you can build something out of. Yeah. Um, and then I imagine like over time, you know, the, the the grand vision of this is an entire institute, and you know, you've got people on the edges building products that are sold to the rest of the world, and internally you have a sort of S to S, you know, scientist to scientist business model where maybe, yeah, you are producing papers or textbooks or lectures. Maybe that is your product, but you have to justify it to somebody who is willing to pay for it, right? Who actually thinks the knowledge that they're getting out of this will be worth it either because they can then sell their knowledge down or because they can build a product out of it or 
because for something else, right? It's basically I want to bring research into the market fully. I want finance to be applied. I want to be able to bet on you know I you know if instead of a fifty year research grant, I want a fifty year you know investment because like the, this potential field is so promising. And if it turns out to be fundamentally revolutionary and we have like a new form of energy coming out of it or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Then the then then you know the 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 investors get get windfall profits off it. And if they don't, mm-hmm. they don't. Um, and like I think all of the problems that people think you need grants and nonprofits to solve, I think finance can solve if you have the right property structures there. Oh, yeah. If you have the right, right? And so that's that's a, it's, it's a strategic goal, right? It's the goal, is, my goal is still to answer the questions, but I want to answer the questions by building things and by finding out, and and again, and I don't think I can answer all these questions myself. I want to make enough money that I can hire other people to find out the things that I need um, and pay them to do it. And then, yeah, build this whole ecosystem of that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I so, to the point of what possible applications are there. I mean, this would fundamentally revolutionize physics if I'm right, right? What are the possible applications of knowing new fundamental laws? I don't know what the details are, but surely there's something, right? Surely there are going to be major, major implications of this knowledge if we're right. Um, Just a new fundamental fact about the way matter in the world works. Um, Can we build, would this help us build AI, right? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe you need, maybe you, maybe you don't need it, but maybe having awareness actually helps with, with knowledge, uh, in the way we want AIs to have knowledge. Right. Or, or maybe, maybe there's something completely unrelated to like living things and consciousness and knowledge that still sort of depends on the, the effect, whatever effect leads to consciousness might lead to other things too. Um, and so, yeah, I think there will be massive, massive potential, again, if I'm right, and that's a huge long shot, right? I'm trying to solve a problem that people have tried to solve forever. Um, I'm, you know, I'm at the very early stages. I don't have my only, the only thing I have is paths not to go down more yeah. than I have paths well, that, to go that down. That helps a lot. Um, so yeah, but if I'm successful, I don't see how we end up in a world, you know, just like imagine, like Newton didn't know about, you know, rockets to the moon. Newton didn't know about, you know, he didn't know ballistics were going to come out of what he was doing, but he could have known. I don't know if he did know, but he could have known that something was going to come out of this. This had to be important. This had to matter. Um, and so I just take that idea very seriously. And I think we can, in every individual case, we should find out why it matters and make it matter uh, sooner than later. Cool. Yeah. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck as somebody who's, again, currently going through nicotine withdrawal and very, <laughs> very concerned with issues about consciousness. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, yeah. hey, man, thank you so much for coming on. Um, yeah. Uh, any any last words before we call it? Um, no, just I mean, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. I if you're if you want to do this again, I'm always down. Uh, I think I mentioned I'm thinking about doing this myself, just like hanging out with friends and talking yeah, about do what it. to them. Um, so maybe there'll be another, uh, another podcast in this vein. Um, yeah, no, but, really uh, deep, very much encourage it. I mean, I think it's a lot of fun. I learn a lot from every one of these that I do both. I mean, like about, you know, material things, but also just about people and what people are interested in. And yeah. I, I, I don't know if this is exactly in a Randian sense, but I really like talking with people about what they're passionate about and what they care about at any given point in time. And yeah. I mean, not, not exactly just feeding off of that, energy but I, I don't know kind of vibing with it and riding the wave and i mean just I mean, you know knowing what's out there because yeah. i mean twitter 
it's hard for people to be deeply enthusiastic in the same sort of compelling way on Twitter that I think that it is in a conversation, whether it's yeah. in person or, you know, over video chat or, or yeah. what, what have you. So, I mean, thank thank you for coming on. This has been yeah. a delight. I mean, I think you're building something like you're, whether or not that's your purpose, like you're, you're built, you've talked about this, right? You're building legibility a little bit for what we are, what this group of weird people is, yeah. and why we're interesting and what we're doing. And that's valuable. Like I know more like that, that, that Twitter thread that I posted earlier today or yesterday, right? That wouldn't have happened without this podcast. I wouldn't have known that there are other people who had experience with objectivism. And yeah. that's not the only thing, right? That's, that's very narrow yeah, sure. on my thing, but like, but, I mean, something I've learned a lot. Um, you know, your, your thing with Steven was fantastic. That was, was it so, I worried we jumped I around it. too much? I mean, it was, it, it was a lot of things, but it was, again, it was very clearly like two people who were really interested and excited about the things and knew a lot about what was going on yeah. and like dropping little nuggets. And yeah, if, if I wanted to actually like really, really know deeply about these issues, I'd have to dig deeper. But now I know that these issues exist. I know there are, I know that Steven is a person like I'd seen him post about this stuff, but I've, I know that he's a person who's not only interested, but deeply knowledgeable and has, has real serious independent thoughts about how this kind of, how these issues arise and where they might be leading. Um, and yeah, I just, I've, I think, I think you've made, you've been, you're making something great here. Um, so yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much, man. Yeah. Um, everyone, this is Shay Levy. He's on Twitter at, at, at Shay at Shay Levy at S H Levy. Uh, S H Levy. Yeah. Okay. I don't know how you pronounce it. I didn't think about it when I made the username. Somebody said Schlevy to me at some point. I was like, Oh, Schlevy. I, I, I kind of like Schlevy. <laughs> that that feels that feels like a hockey guy name. Actually, <laughs> like Schlevy, get out there and punch that guy in the face. And <laughs> yeah, cool, cool. I'll make sure that I get that right in the notes. Um, once again, thanks so much for coming on, man. We, we are at an hour and 40 minutes. That is by far the longest running episode so far. I can see me. I can see this going like far longer in the future. But for now, I think we should call it.